The Economist. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. Britain's annual budget days are a mix of short-term political theatricals and awkward questions about taxation and spending, with projections of fiscal health to come thrown in. George Osborne's seventh main budget as Chancellor takes place at a time when, along with most of his fellow finance ministers in Europe, he's stricken by projections of global economic gloom. That's Mr Osborne's reasoning for ensuring that the fiscal impact of this year's national account keeping won't be fully felt until 2019 to 2020. Then, he reckons, he'll finally have achieved the sought-after budget surplus. Along the way, he dealt with sin and sugar taxes and his plans for infrastructure reform. This week, The Economist asks, what did Budget Day 2016 achieve? And how bankable are the Chancellor's predictions? Callum Williams, our economics correspondent, joins me. Uh, Callum, I know you've been slaving over a piece responding to the budget. And in large letters, how do you think it went for George Osborne? Well, you have to bear in mind that he wasn't really able to do very much given the uh, sort of tension over the forthcoming EU referendum. So he had to be quite careful about what he uh, implemented. The other thing to bear in mind is that there was a bit of a downgrade to economic forecasts from the Office for Budget Responsibility. So he's got ta- you know, less tax money to play with. Having said that, there are a few kind of, uh, you know, interesting uh, policies in there. Nothing absolutely huge. His focus for the budget really was on the generations. He sort of said a number of times, this is a, you know, this is a policy for future generations, a budget for future generations. And that's really the thrust of the policy, improving the productivity of the British economy. And in some ways, I think he did that fairly well. Why do you think he chose this tagline about next generations? We're rather used to chancellors talking about hardworking families or perhaps targeting female voters maternity benefits and the like. But this one seemed to be aimed at people who aren't even voting yet. Why? So the early period of a new parliament is really when you want to get the tough decisions out of the way. And of course, the idea of generational inequality is one of those things that's really been sort of fizzing in British political discourse now for a few years. And of course, the other thing is, it's one of those things that no one can disagree with. No one can disagree with the idea that you should make intergenerational inequality lower. It's a completely unobjectionable aspiration. And so it's the kind of thing that is not going to irritate anyone. And it's also the kind of thing where almost any policy can be justified with reference to it. So it's the sort of perfect political cover. He's talked or indicated about doing a tax reforming budget. And there were, in fairness, some tax reforming measures in here, particularly for smaller companies on the business rate. But it wasn't overall a very ambitious tax reforming budget. He backed off a pensions reform. Why did he do that? Well, there's two possible explanations. One is that it was simply a bad idea. Switching from one pension system to another is very, very complicated. The other reason is a political one, which is that it would have, you know, generated a lot of bad headlines. Having said that, with the introduction of this thing called the Lifetime ISA, he has, in a way, gone some way towards introducing a kind of pension reform. And let me explain what I mean by that. The way it works in Britain at the moment is that you get tax relief on your pension contributions, but then you pay tax when you take out your pension. What the Lifetime ISA does is it takes taxed income, i.e. the income, your earnings are then are subject to income tax, and then you pay into the ISA. So you've already paid the tax. And then you save. And then when you take it out again, you're not taxed. So in other words, the tax goes before, not after. Now, this is that model was the proposed change. And so this kind of goes halfway towards it. And if it is successful and people save and they like it, then perhaps down the line, George Osborne or the next chancellor can say, yes, let's make this change. 
Well, if he didn't get big headlines from that kind of major tax reform, he certainly did on the so-called sugar tax on sugary drinks, something that's been kicked about by successive governments at Westminster. Most of them have found a reason not to do it. So do you think it's a good idea for the Chancellor to take the risk right now? So the economic evidence behind the sugar tax is not absolutely slam dunk, but it is reasonably conclusive. You know, the way of dissuading activity that you don't like through the tax system, that's sort of a perfectly reasonable thing to do. You know, it's not going to raise that much revenue. So it's not something that's really significant, but it's a perfectly reasonable policy. And, and you know, we'd be you know, quite happy that he's done it. 2019-20, quite a way down the line, just coming up to the next election. As it happens, he will finally have balanced the books with a budget surplus. Do you believe him? He has essentially said that in the year of an election, there'll be a very large fiscal tightening of perhaps, you know, one and a half to two percent of GDP. What he's basically done is kind of left all of the big spending cuts and big tax rises to 2019-20, which coincides with this date when he is you know, saying he's going to run a budget surplus. Now, you know, no government looking for re-election is, is going to actually follow through with that. So he has to hope that the economy picks up again and tax revenues rise and he uh, doesn't need to rely on that, you know, big twist right at the end of the parliament. In which case, why did he commit to it? He has to because he's committed by law to running a surplus by 2019-20. So he he really doesn't have an option. So that's why, really. Just to push you on that, do you believe that's a doable deal for him? I think it's probably doable. It depends on so many different things. His track record of meeting these targets is is fairly bad. He broke one of his fiscal targets in the budget today, which was that public debt to GDP was supposed to be falling in every year. But it is going to rise this year. So he's already broken that. So he may break this one again, but, you know, it may not matter. Modern budgets often mean that the devil is in the detail. They look pretty shiny on the day. And then uh, you and your colleagues go through them with a fine tooth comb. Any areas in this budget that are attracting your attention with a critical eye? I think the infrastructure policy is much less than meets the eye. He has set up this infrastructure commission, which is a kind of independent body to say, you know, let's invest in this and invest in that. And Osborne boasted in this in the budget about, you know, funding High Speed 3 and funding Crosswell 2 and so on. In reality, we're talking about kind of feasibility studies rather than actually putting shovels on the ground. It's all money that's kind of been announced before. You know, the fact of the matter is that infrastructure spending is being cut very significantly in this parliament. And no matter what he says in this budget, that's the reality. Callum Williams, thank you very much. You've been listening to The Economist Asks with me, Anne McAlvoy. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist.